Feltiorot is a dobeha. Welcome to Crown the Beha's Short Stories and Poetry for December 15, 2023. I'm Terence O'Donnell, your favorite Gaelic skillet. Come sit with me in a warm chair with a cup of something warm, maybe with a Christmas cookie to hand, while I read you some more fictional stories and a poem this week. So I've got four short stories and a poem for you. A Christmas story, but not your normal milk and cookies type. The third and last chapter of the glacier, a short scary story about neighborhoods, a poem of longing and loss, and Robert G. Long praise third chapter from his new book Sanctuary. So there's nothing better than sitting somewhere warm to listen to good stories and poems for a wee bit to take your mind off your troubles this week. This once a week podcast is available to listen to on nearly every podcast platform out there and now on YouTube. Subscriptions are still free. But I do have a donations tab on the rss.com webpage and on my website at crondabeha.com. I appreciate any support for the efforts to bring these stories and poems to you. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription to Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I'll let you know. And it just so happens I do have one of those stories today. My first story is called The Perfect Tree. It's Christmas Magic in the Forest by Graham Flandango, published in a Kraken Lore. The sun was setting, the coal was building, and Billy was getting tired of walking. His boots, once so warm, were now full of ice and snow. Still, they kept trudging along, with Billy wondering why they had to go so far. He wanted to ask his father why they couldn't just go to one of the tree farms the way they'd done in years past. That's where he thought they were going when his father said he knew the perfect place to get the Christmas tree that year, and maybe they'd run into some of Santa's helpers. Billy was nine, and he'd given up on Santa the year before, the year his mother left him for good. He knew better than to assume the helpers were anything more than some people in silly outfits. But his father had been so assistant, humming carols and darting around filled with cheer. There was one thing about his father's cheer. Billy knew there was something different about it. There was something different about all of his father's moods in the last year. They all felt like candy glass, like they would snap and shatter under the slightest bit of weight. This had been the year Billy had learned how to tread lightly. Even now, as his father led him deeper into the woods, his grin seemed more like bared teeth than a friendly gesture, like the warning of a wild animal. And it was a glassy look to his eyes that Billy didn't like at all. And now, fat, wet flakes of snow had started falling, making the whole thing more miserable. Billy always loved the snow, but he loved it when it glimmered in the light from his home, when he knew it was just a few simple steps to get inside and get warm again. For the first time, Billy got the sense of snow as a dangerous thing, as something that would bite if it had the urge. What about this one, he asked nervously, pointing to one of the trees off to the right. That looks good, Dad. His father didn't even look. He just shook his head. No, not that one, kiddo. I'm telling you, I know just the spot. Billy didn't want to make a fuss, but he couldn't help himself. Dad, I'm cold. We'll make you some nice hot chocolate later, his dad said. Geez, when I was your age, I could spend hours wandering around in the snow. Billy shivered, and his stomach churned in frustration. Every now and then, his father would get some idea in his head, make some grand plan, and there was no way to talk him out of it. His mother could, before. She had that way about her, but that time had passed. Now it's just the two of them. Before that year, Billy hadn't thought of himself as a lonely kid. He had friends. He had family. He had a safe place that was warm and inviting. But all that was gone now. He had grown quiet and withdrawn, and his friends weren't in the mood for it. And, of course, the inviting warm space had grown much colder. The way the night was growing colder. 
Now he felt nothing but alone all the time. He wanted to ask what happened. He needed to know where his mother had gone and why. But as obvious from the start, this wasn't going to be a topic of conversation. Really, there were no discussions to be had at all in the house. You did your thing, you smiled, you acted like everything was great. You didn't make a fuss. And so, he was left wondering. Always wondering. Was it something he did? Was it something he said? Was that why his father always seemed so distant? Does his father blame him for it all? All the misery and pain? On the very lonely nights, Billy found himself thinking about it a lot. Here it is, his dad declared. There was even a little genuine joy in his voice. I told you I knew the spot. Billy looked around. They were in a clearing. It was just a patch of empty space with trees clustered tightly around it. All of them seemed to tower over him. They couldn't imagine this was a place to find something that would fit their house. He remembered the year they'd gone to New York City to see the tree in Rockefeller Center. Maybe this was the kind of place you could find one of those, not something to put in your living room. As Billy stared at the massive trees, he thought he saw something moving in the deep shadows. He figured it had to be his imagination. The snow here was even colder than before, the winds more bracing. It seemed strange that this little spot would be so much colder than everywhere else. But then he thought he saw movement again, and all thoughts of cold were forgotten. He shivered, but for a different reason. Um, Dad, he hazarded, his fear warring with his need to be a bother. But his father was barely listening. He seemed to be in his own world. He started humming, Here Comes Santa Claus, as he pulled the pack he'd been wearing off his back. Billy could swear he heard the distant sound of bells, but his father seemed not to notice that either. He had a collapsible shovel that he'd opened and was using it to dig the snow off a certain spot. He was working with a sort of wild abandon that had Billy nervous. He shifted from foot to foot like he had to pee. His stomach did little flips. Meanwhile, his father was revealing the packed earth, what looked like a ring of small stones jutting just a bit out of the ground. He made a kind of whoop of victory. Dad, can we just go? Billy pleaded. I don't think I want a tree from out here. The truth was, he was starting to think there was no Christmas tree at all, let alone any of Santa's helpers. He didn't know what there was out here, but he didn't like it. As if on cue, he heard the bells again. There was a low tone to them. He wished he had language to describe it, or the way he could feel it in his teeth. Dad, please! His father swung around. There was a wild look in his eyes that made Billy jump. He almost took off running. There didn't seem to be anything of his father left in those eyes. Don't be stupid, kiddo, his father said, still with manic cheer. Not after we came all this way. But Dad, don't talk back to me, young man, his father boomed, causing Billy to shrink back. His father seemed to get that he'd pushed it too far. He took a breath and rubbed his jaw, looking concerned. Billy could feel tears burning the backs of his eyes. Hey, look, I'm sorry, his father said. I, uh, I just got a little excited, you know? Billy nodded. He didn't know, but he wasn't about to say anything. His father reached into the pack and pulled out a small flask. He held it out to Billy. Here, come over here and take a sip. It'll warm you up. I think you'll be a lot happier if you're a little warmer. Billy didn't want to go, but he didn't know how to refuse. He shuffled over and accepted the flask, barely noticing that he was now fully in the circle. He took a hesitant drink and grimaced. It was sickly sweet, with a strange bite underneath. He did have to admit, though, he could feel it moving through him, warming him. Good, his father mumbled. Very good. Now just stay there. Billy did as he was told, and his father stood and called out. Old ones, hear me. He has drunk of your wine, and he stands in your circle. He is yours, as you commanded. I asked for my boon in return. I asked for my wife to come back. Dad, Billy hazarded. 
Shut your mouth, his dad hissed. This is on you. It was never the same after you. Billy didn't have to ask what his father meant. His mouth dropped open as tears filled his eyes. It was what he always knew deep down. It was all his fault. The bells sounded louder now, and beings emerged from the forest. They were tall and thin, with pale bluish skin and flowing silver hair. Their eyes, too, were of a cold silver color that shone in the meager moonlight, and they had long, pointed ears that extended up past their heads. They surrounded Billy, staring at him. They were the most beautiful and terrible creatures he'd ever seen. Dad, he managed. It was all they could think of. I'm sorry, kiddo, his father said. This is it. The only way. I just can't go on without her. I'm so sorry. His father turned away. Billy could hear the man's muffled sobs. Normally, the thought of making his father cry would have filled him with shame and guilt. But somehow that didn't seem to matter anymore. Because the beings were closing in on him. He looked over at his father, but he realized there was no hope there. The old man was crying, but the teethers meant nothing. This moment was the whole reason they were out there. This was what his father wanted all along. He turned his head, not wanting to even look at his dad. He just hoped that whatever happened next, it didn't hurt too bad. My next story is part three of The Glacier from Antonio Melonio. Welcome to the last part of The Glacier. The following short story, the, which I mentioned before, has fallen into three parts. The story of Lucija, as she observes over decades, the slow disappearance of the fictional Mount Tregolo Glacier. In part one, Lucija was just a child, visited the lake at the foot of the glacier with her grandfather. In part two, she returned with her husband. And now, in part three, she visits for the last time in her life with her son and his children. This is a story about changing Earth, the terrible loss we all carry, and in the end, a hope for a better future. Always hope. With old age comes wisdom, they say. But Lucicia feels only the exhaustion and muffled pain. She rests in the camping chair, drowsy from the pills, her granddaughter beside her. By all means, she should feel something, yet she finds herself empty. Lake Bohan looks the same as it did decades ago when she came here with her grandfather, and then again when Nicola led her up Mountain Treglev. Their ashes belong to the earth now, she thinks, stricken with grief, and still her heart beats. For ninety years it did now, and she can feel the clockwork slowing until inevitably something must give. Happy birthday, Baca, she says Andrea, her round face already burning up in the sun. She's in her bathing suit, but hasn't dared put more than a toe into the freezing water. Is it as you imagine? Lucia smiles and caresses the little girl's dark hair. It is, my dear. Thank you all so much. This isn't all, Mama, says Christian, struggling with the tense poles. You'll see tomorrow. I hope you don't expect me to climb up there, she nods toward the great mountain range, to which she'll forever be bound by memory. They laugh. <laughs> we wouldn't dare, says Sophia, putting a hand on her husband's shoulder. You're too heavy to carry, Lucija. In the evening, they sit under the stars, drinking tea and eating grass soup. Andrea complains, as she always does, when her father makes the hearty broth of beans and onions, but still she gobbles the food like a hungry little wolf, sprinkling the table with fatty liquid. The traditional recipe calls for pork ribs, Lucija remembers, but there hasn't been a live pig in years. She remembers how controversial her grandfather's vegetarianism had been back in the day and smiles at the absurdity of it all. You happy, Lucija? asked Sophia. She had tried helping her husband, but cooking had always been Christogen's domain, and he could be quite pedantic about it. Of course, dear, why shouldn't I be? Your eyes, she says, they look thoughtful. Lucija sighs. I'm just tired, don't you worry. Wait till you're 90, then you'll see how it feels. 
Krista Jen comes over with an inconspicuous half-full glass bottle. The label says mineral water, but as soon as he removes the cap, the strong, biting smell of alcohol penetrates the crisp evening air. Lucia just smiles. Andrea is fast asleep in the tent, and he pours in three shots of rakija. They gulp it down together, and for a moment everything burns until a soothing warmth spreads in their bellies. Lucija calls for another one. The stuff is better than any pill. They drink it down, grimacing and groaning like teenagers. I can't imagine what it must be like, Sophia says. The things you've seen, Lucija, rainforests, glaciers, icebergs, penguins, elephants. It must have been a different world. It was, dear. Lucija feels that Rakija doing its work. In her younger days, she could have emptied that bottle all by herself, but now she feels her head spinning already. But I've also watched it die and did nothing. There was death all around me, and I chose to ignore it. I lived my life in an office, Sophia, staring at a screen and doing useless work for others while the world went to hell. Hey, Mama, don't talk like that. You did well. Christian looks at her, and there is an intensity in his eyes. Besides, not everything is dead. There's still hope. We will rebuild. She wants to say that as a climate scientist, he must think that, is compelled to think that, but bites her tongue. What purpose would her cynicism serve now? Her time is over. Let the younger generations try at least. Let them dream for as long as they can in this world she and her like destroyed. Wake up, Mama. Lucidia opens her eyes to find Christian standing over her. It's still dark outside and she's disorientated and groggy. The memories of last night's conversation come flooding back and she feels a pang of regret. Damn that Rakija. Morning, she whispered, purling, pushing herself up. Sophia and Andrea are still fast asleep. Christian hands her a steaming cup of coffee. How are you feeling? Fine, she lies, taking a sip of the bitter liquid. Why did you wake me? Drink your coffee, put on some warm clothes, and then we'll go for a walk, Mama, just you and me. She follows Christian outside, feeling a chill in the air. The sun hasn't risen yet, but a protruding pink has taken hold of the horizon, slowly grasping up. The sound of the wind-ridden waves singing against the lake shores fills her ears. Where are we going, Christian? You know I can't walk for long, and don't worry, Mama, we're taking the glider. They reached the flat meadow where they landed the day before. The glider rests in stark contrast to the surrounding landscape, its solar skin glinting in the early light, a strange foreign contraption, almost alien. Lucidia had been hesitant about taking it to come up here. How much metal is in that thing? How many resources, rare earths, extruded violently from the ground? How many working hours? Such a grandiose waste it all, she thought. But Christogen had convinced her that she couldn't have made the hike. The battery should be full, he says. It was sunny yesterday. He helps her inside, strapping her in with care and making sure she's comfortable. Then he climbs into the cockpit and, seconds later, the glider takes off without a sound. Soon they're soaring above the shrubbery, the mountains stretching out in the distance. Lucidia feels that sense of weightlessness and freedom again, the same that had carried that falcon over Mount Treglow so many years ago, but it feels artificial and unnatural. Another attempt at becoming more than they deserve. Christian doesn't notice. He appears cheerful, pointing out mountains, lakes, and rivers, explaining their significance, how they formed, and what would become of them in millions of billions of years when they'd be all that's left. How can he be so happy? And when did she become so bitter? And you know that peak, of course, he says, pointing, and she does. How could she not? She remembers her grandfather's ashes scattering in the cold, biting wind, and no cola to her side. She grips the edges of her seat, her skeletal hands white as death. It's all right, Mama, he says, squeezing her hand. 
we're not going there. We're going further. The glider rises until the world loses color, and then still they rise, breaking through the clouds with brilliant, warm light flooding the cockpit. It's blinding, disorientating, nauseating, but also very exhilarating. Lucija can't help laughing. To her side, Christogen is whooping with joy, and soon she joins in. What beauty and terror, she thinks. What insignificance in the face of the grand and the preposterous to think themselves death. What are we in the passing of the uncounted eons and the vastness of the mountains and the oceans, the eternity of the sun, a blip, a curious abnormity, soon forgotten? And from their grandiosity is born the small and the weak, and if you cannot protect and cherish that, then all else falls as well. Mama, he says, we're almost there. There's a great mountain range ahead, its peaks white and ragged and glassy in the sun. They reflect with such brilliance that Lucia has to avert her eyes. The Planica Range, Christian explains, the highest mountains in this part of the world, he hesitates. It's where I worked for the last 11 years. She's surprised. I thought you worked at the university. I do, Mama. This is part of the project. Sylvia works here, too. In fact, it's our home now. There's even a school for Andrea. What project? What are you talking about, Christian? He just smiles. You'll see. They fly in silence among the mountain peaks and clouds. So close she can almost touch the ice, and to her right she sees something incredible. It looks like an array of small black drones, but the patterns they form, seemingly shifting at random, are far too intricate, far too alive. Is that? Yes, Mama. Birds. They're real. But how? I thought I'll explain when we get there. They leave the mountain behind and see a striking vista of green up and up. An endless carpet of trees, crisscrossed by brooks and streams, speckled with ponds. The glider approaches a clearing to the west, not far from the mountain range that guards this valley like a row of giants. Do you remember when the governments fell, Mama? Of course, you were just a boy, but your father and I were right in the midst. I remember when they stopped counting the dead. One day they'd say a billion, the next two billion. Then they went silent. She turns to him, Christogen, where are you taking me? He lands the glider and helps her out. They walk along a narrow trail lined by the trees and bushes. There are flowers in the grass, and the air is thick and sweet. Pollen swirl in the breeze, tickling their nostrils and making their eyes itch. Many of the universities held out when everything went to hell, Mama and they stayed in contact with each other. What you see here, he spreads his arms with a grin, is the greatest conservation effort in history. They arrive at what looks like a village, a neat cluster of wooden houses, simple and rustic yet elegant. There's people scuttling about, young and old, from all around the world. Lucija recognizes at least ten different languages, and they turn to her with curiosity. This is our home, Christian says, his eyes shining with pride. We want you to live here with us. We call it Sloboda. Freedom? Why? Because it's exactly that. He walks ahead and looks at her. Come on, Mama. You scramble up a grassy hill, Christogen holding her arm. The ground is slippery and treacherous. It must have rained not long ago. How is this possible, she asks, out of breath. The world is dying. Well, it's not, Mama. Not anymore. Most of it's already dead, but now it's changing, too, as it has for billions of years. He thinks for a moment. You know about that sea vault in Svalbard, right? The one they've blown up? Yes. This is the same thing, but with living specimens. We've collected and preserved as many as we could and set the most resistant, the most suitable to this climate free. They've been transforming this area for a while now, and some have survived. There's even animals, the birds you saw, small mammals like rabbits and rodents, snakes and frogs too, and countless insects. She halts, disbelief and a flicker of anger playing on her face. Christogen, you kept it all a secret? Why didn't you tell me? He sighs, I'm so sorry, Mama. It was too dangerous, too uncertain. 
We moved here just a year ago after making absolutely sure the ecosystem could handle it. We're experimenting with surviving off the land, but it's still early stages and our supplies are limited. Our food arrives by drones, and we rely on solar panel deliveries and the like. There's still so much to do. Also, his tone grows solemn, there are groups that would exploit this. Few know about Sloboda, and it must stay this way until we are certain, until we can help others. Though still hurt, she relaxes a bit, and they continue walking. It's beautiful, son. It is. But you're playing God here, is, it what, you're, is what you're doing. He smiles. Yes, Mama, we are. But God left a long time ago. If we do nothing, it'll take millions of years for the earth to fully recover. We're just helping along because it's our fault we cannot accept that. They climb in silence for a while, and there's so much Lucidia wants to say, so many questions and concerns. Instead, she says nothing, for there's nothing left to lose anyway, and there might be a chance, a glimmer of hope, in what they're doing here. Soon, they reach the crest and recline on an improvised bench. Little more than a couple of branches woven together. It's not just about the world, Mama, he explains. It's also about us. We're thinking hard, experimenting, how we can exist in harmony. We must find our way back while moving forward at the same time. It's hard, and it might not work, but it's worth a try. She remains silent, and he takes this for acceptance, or at least tolerance. It's enough. From the vantage point on the top of the hill, they see the entire mountain range. Christian points. Do you see it, Mama? What? The glacier. The glacier. Between Mount Dinara over there and Mount Volojak. I see it. She follows the broad white tongue meandering down the mountains and remembers her grandfather's story, how he fell into the crevasse and then scrambled out all by himself, sheer willpower and resilience, and then climbed to Mount Tregla's summit. He's still there, Nicola, too. What about it, Christian? It's growing, Mama. Growing? It's not growing. It's just... It is. A couple of meters every year for three years now. She's stunned, speechless for a while. How? He takes her hand. It's changing, Mama. Everything's changing. A bee buzzes past her and lands on the wildflower. The air almost crackles with static as the storm draws near, anticipation building on the horizon. So it is, she thinks and smiles. So that's a pretty good environmental, kind of futuristic, dystopian climate story. Gives us hope. Now my next one is a short one. It's from David Pahor, Talking with the Neighbors, published in Illumination Curated. A sort of candy and a bottle of whiskey liqueur are good starting points for a neighborly discourse. She gazed at the flower pots that had been neatly arrayed by the south wall of her late mother's house, strewn across the gravel pathway in glum gobs of shard and earth. Bits and pieces of motley seedlings lay everywhere. She knelt and inspected the ground for footprints, sighing. Nova, Neva, come here immediately, she called out to her daughters. Six-year-old twins came charging from around the corner in their playtime dresses and leggings, followed by a pink and stubble-skinned auto, the Lakeland Terrier. She had known trouble was in town as early as that morning when she found the dog huddled at the foot of the stairs, coatless, a silent victim of mysterious denuding. Did you have anything to do with this? She pointed sternly at the plant cemetery by her feet. The girls looked at each other with wide blue eyes tilted her heads in unison as they tended to do when deliberating, then sang out breathlessly, Shenanigans, shenanigans! She smiled thinly. So, there were small ladies and gentlemen. The twins nodded, relieved that Mama understood. That evening, after she put the girls to bed and locked Otto in her bedroom, she sat on the old rocking chair on the porch of her former home, which they now visited only twice a year, 
her father's short-barreled Ithaca Model 37 on her knees, loaded with buckshot. The peace offering, a shoebox full of candy with a bottle of whiskey liqueur, rested on the nearby steps. As her mother had told her on a similar night three decades before, managing community relationships was a hands-on undertaking. Now I've got a poem, and it's a little bit sad, so just kind of bear with it here. Um, it's called Half Asleep, Where Did You Go? by my friend Mitch. For a moment when I woke up, I thought you were there. I reached over to your pillow to touch you. It was cold. Where did you go? I rubbed cobwebs from my eyes. Maybe you went for some tea. Sometimes when you can't sleep, it helps. I listened hard through the shadows around our bed. My fingers found the space where you used to sleep instead. Still my hand kept searching. I'm still searching. What was it you said? Darling, please be strong. I'll wait for you. You'll see. And you closed your eyes. In the dark, I opened mine. And I realized then, as I realized every night since, you had somewhere else to be. And he's got a note on here, which I will read to you. There was a time when we were going through chemo when it was touch and go. I didn't know if she would make it. Every night I woke up and reached out to see if she was next to me. I still do it even now. It scares me, though. We've been together more than 30 years. I can't imagine what will happen if one day I reach out and she's not there. I dream about it sometimes. Hold on to your loved ones, dear friends. Love them when they're alive. Don't wait. Do it now. Today. One day they will have somewhere else to be. This is from Mitch. And now my last story, Chapter 3 of The Sanctuary, from Robert G. Lompre, The Necessity of Decontamination Before Entering, Arrival at the Cabin. Once they stood in front of the entrance, Carrie's father spoke out from a speaker. Because of the virus, both of you will have to go through a decontamination process before you can enter the cabin area and the cabin. It's the only sure way to protect you and us. You'll be going through two decontamination units. When you're ready, just press the red button. Oh, and for now, you will need to leave your bags at the entrance. They will have to go through a different decontamination portal. A red light appeared on the panel and Carrie pushed it. The door slid open into the wall. Once the two were through the door, it then slid closed. A rush of spray came out there from all directions, including the walls, ceiling, and floor. They were soon soaked and feeling the uncontrollable weight of wet clothing. A light on the wall ahead of them turned green. Without thinking about it, Carrie pushed on the green light and another door slid open. As soon as they passed through the door, a welcome blast of heat began to remove the chill they had begun to feel because of their wet clothing. Once they fully entered the room, the door closed behind them. Carrie's dad's voice came over a hidden speaker. The next decontamination unit requires that you leave your wet clothing there. Warm, dry clothing will be waiting for you once you're through the second unit. You've got to be kidding, protested Anne. Your dad expects me to get naked? Didn't you hear him? He said we get dry clothes. You've seen me new before when we went skinny dipping with friends. It's just about keeping my mom and sister safe and you safe as well. I still think it's weird. Anne hesitated for several minutes before Carrie's father spoke. The door won't open until you're ready to enter the unit. The sensors can detect if there is fabric on your bodies and won't open if you're wearing clothing. I'm sorry, but it has to be this way because of the virus. The look of annoyance of evident on her face, Anne stripped off her clothes and stood beside Carrie. Another green light appeared. She reached out to push it before Carrie. Nothing happened. 
Carrie then reached out to touch the button and the door was activated. Once through, the door automatically shut behind him. A short tunnel lay before them. As they began to walk through the tunnel, another set of nozzles cold them with a liquid that was meant to decontaminate their skin. Near the end of the tunnel, a wash of warm air quickly dried them. Once through the tunnel, another green light was activated. Carrie looked at Anne, and she again tried to activate the door, again without success. Then, as before, when he touched the light, the door began to open. The promised clothing was waiting for them. Two white jumpsuits, the kind one sees police wear at crime scenes, were their only options. Anne wasted no time in covering up her nakedness. Carrie hesitated only a few seconds before putting on the remaining jumpsuit. Another tunnel appeared. Together they walked about ten meters where they reached a set of stairs. Carrie motioned Anne to go first. At the top of the stairs, a blinking light indicated yet one more panel that needed activating. Carrie didn't hesitate as he reached in front of Anne to place his hand on the panel. And, as expected, an opening appeared. Both of them walked through into what appeared to be a normal entryway to a house. They could hear a number of voices coming from the house, children's voices as well as those of the adults. They're here, exclaimed Carrie's mother, who then wasted no time in giving her son an embarrassing hug. She then embraced Anne and held her tight without saying anything, knowing it wasn't the time for words. Grasping Anne's hand, Carrie's mother, Leah, led Anne into the main room of the cabin where Carrie's father, Dorian, was sitting by the fireplace, surrounded by two other adults and at least seven children, including Leslie, Carrie's younger sister. Leah was overwhelmed with the dramatic shift in her life. Dorian had convinced her to leave her home. Fear was what motivated her to protect Leslie. The cabin was a surprise. She was more surprised to find that there were others already at the cabin, people she didn't know. Come, I'm sure you two are starving. The cabin somehow looked a little smaller with so many people in the family room now from how Carrie remembered it from his visit a few months earlier. Then he had arrived in daylight hours. Then he didn't have to navigate a series of gates and tunnels to reach the cabin. His dad called it a cabin, but it looked like any cabin that Carrie had ever seen, either in person or in any photo. For one thing, it was round, and it had three levels. The first level, the one he was in now with Anne, was smaller than the second level. The third level to be even smaller than the first level. The whole thing looked more like a flying saucer than anything else. Of course, it wasn't a flying saucer, as flying saucers were never made out of wood and placed in the middle of a forest. Since he and Anne had arrived in the dark of early night, she wouldn't have seen the shape of the cabin. Carrie followed his mother and Anne into the next room, the kitchen. The kitchen had everything his mother could ever want in the kitchen, with all the latest appliances. While the cabin was in the far northern section of the province, far from power lines, there was electricity and solar panels which covered quite a bit of the outer shell of the cabin. There were also two wind turbines and a meadow on the north side of the cabin with another bank of solar panels. Here, Leah said as she pointed to several bowls of recently prepared food. Help yourselves. When you're done, I will show you where you can sleep. Her words directed to Anne before turning to Carrie. Thanks, Mom, Carrie said as he felt his energy levels drop because of tiredness and stress. I already know where my room is. I'm not very hungry, Anne spoke. If you don't mind, I would like to find out where my room is. I'm beat. I hope someone will bring my stuff in so I can change out of this jumpsuit. I'm sure that your bags are already in your room. Dorian had two men take your stuff and yours too, Carrie, up to your rooms. The bedrooms were all on the second level. The last time Carrie had been in the cabin, most of the second level rooms were empty. He had wondered why the cabin had been designed this way as it seemed to be a waste of space. The stairs to the second level ascended to reach a circular hallway. 
The bedrooms were on the left-hand side, while a large open area was in the center. Every so often, a support column was placed between the open hallway and the center. Carrie guessed that the columns were necessary to support the third level. There didn't appear to be any way to access the third level, which made him think that the top floor was undeveloped. The room he had chosen as his previously displayed a poster advertising his favorite hockey team. He opened the door to his room and saw that his two bags were already placed against one wall, along which was a large closet and desk. Two large windows looked out on a small lake. Since it was cloudy, no moonlight betrayed the existence of the lake as he looked out. Carrie made sure that the drapes were closed as he was hoping to sleep in. Stripping off the jumpsuit, he went into the small bathroom to have a quick shower and to brush his teeth. Only moments after finishing his bedtime routines, he crawled into a single bed and pulled a warm blanket over himself. Now that's all the stories I have for you this week. Um, I will bring you chapter four of Sanctuary next week. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. I try to offer a ride of something here, maybe something that touches hard a little bit. I'm glad you uh, were here to enjoy the show and listen to the stories. And I'll see you next week. Slancha. Kora Mahagat. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Krona Bea Stories of Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Krona Bea Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal on helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I entertain you today. This is Shauna King. I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched, and those inside be well matched. Schlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. Thank you.